Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's get down to business. Uh, Brian Christopher Abroad, born the 29th of September 1957 in Knoll, Bristol in England. What was life for like growing up for you? Um, it was fun. Um, we lived in Bristol and I went to Colston School in Bristol and had, uh, a, a, I mean, at the time I didn't know it was a very good education, but you look back and uh, and it was good academically as well as sporting uh, wise. And certainly that's what sowed the seed uh, in me to uh, to play sport for a living. Although I really didn't make a decision about that until I was, you know, late teens, early twenties, really. But but certainly growing up was uh, was great. I had a brother and a sister. What um, names, please? Uh, my brother was called Michael. Unfortunately, he died at twenty six. Had a, a massive heart attack and uh, and died at twenty six, which was a, a real shock to the system. Then? I was twenty four, so we were sort of eighteen months apart. Uh, very close. Uh, not particularly, but, uh, you know, like brother and sister, sure. we'd have our good times and, and we'd have our, our bad times. Uh, and my sister is 18 months younger than me um, and she's uh, alive and, and well and has three kids of her own and uh, and is enjoying life as well. So, Dad, Ken and uh, Mum, Nancy, how, how, what do they do with their time? Well, uh, my mum is... Uh, is is my mum's still going strong? My father is ninety five, and uh, and he is doing remarkably well as well. Uh, he was, I suppose, he was the first one who set me on the path to play cricket because uh, I remember as as real youngsters, we as a family always used to go and watch him play cricket at Stoke Bishop in Bristol every Saturday, and uh, and it, you know we would go off, and my brother and I, and mum would throw us the ball, and we'd try and hit the ball back and so we generally play on the boundaries edge while dad was out there fielding and and batting and then at the end of the game it was a a favoured treat of ours to on the way home pick up fish and chips and then take the fish and chips back home to uh, a pretty brilliant day actually doesn't it to eat and (laughs) and then obviously go to bed after that so you know that was that was the summer saturday summer uh, what do you do for a living your dad he was a builder. Uh-huh. He, uh, his grandfather started up a company called T. Broad and Sons. And uh, his father went into it and he went into it. And uh, my brother was going into it until he died uh, suddenly. Um, but my father sold the business just at the right time, just before the 
the the uh, the crash in the 80s and uh, so made a decent amount of money on the selling of the business and um and has has followed my career throughout and and is obviously now following my son's career throughout yeah. so he's enjoying life we'll come on to your son the demon bowler a little yes. later if, okay. if we may um you say you say you're a late developer and that answers one of my later questions about why you're not making your you know first class debut until you're in your 20s what 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 uh, how do you describe your cricket development you say you didn't make the decision till later on what were you doing with your teenage life then do you know i, I mean i went to uh, colston's as i say and and i managed to get scraped through five o levels mm. And I remember playing a second team game for that Gloucestershire. That makes you a genius by some sports things. <laughs> maybe, it? maybe. But uh, you went to St Paul's College in. Uh, I, I did in and, Cheltenham, yeah. And I was I was playing a second team game down at Hampshire, Gloucester Seconds versus Hampshire. And I remember I was waiting on one O level result, and my father phoned me the morning of the second or third day of this match. And he said, son, you've got it. You're going to St. Paul's College in Cheltenham. And actually, it was a real boost, a real fillip for me because, you know, my father being and my mother being from that generation, they wanted me to have an education before anything else that, that comes into and let's be one's fair, life. you didn't know that then, but they were right, weren't they? Well, I don't know, actually, because I didn't finish my education. I did the school and then I went to St. Paul's College and I did a year on uh, teacher training. And then I changed to a sports management course for a second year. And at the end of the second year, uh, I was offered a cricket contract. Didn't really have to think about it too long. And that was really when I decided that cricket was, was for me because I could play a sport that I loved and be paid for it. I, in the middle of all this, as a 15-year-old, um, you, you, you become, I mean, an unusual illness, I think. For, is it, let me get it right. Osteomyelitis? Osteomyelitis. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, it's a bone marrow uh, disease. And I had it, uh, funny enough, I, I, mean, I had a fantastic GP when, when I was growing up. And I'd been in, in and out of hospital quite a bit through my teenage years. And uh, I had a cold and a, quite a heavy, fluey-type cold. And the doctor came round and, uh, you know, I was lying in bed and, you know, I complained of a soreness in my hip. And he had a look at it and, um, I mean, I don't know what he looked at, what he, he saw, but he immediately thought that there was something wrong. Maybe it was the symptoms that I was uh, describing. Um, and uh, so I was taken into hospital and I remember my parents telling me afterwards that the first, going into hospital there, uh, they were told to brace themselves that I might not actually make it through. I was that that bad. Wow. Um, and uh, and if I did make it through, then I would uh, never play sport again because I would always have one leg shorter than the other. Um, so obviously I wasn't told this, uh, and I had nine weeks in hospital. I had uh, 52 injections of antibiotics, uh, so 26 in each cheek, which was, you know... Yeah, that, that can't have been most, for, but you must have had more pleasant experiences in your life than that. Uh, exactly. But I remember Henry Cooper coming around. There was a friend of his who was in a hospital uh, over Christmas, and he came round to see this chap, and Henry then decided to come round and say hello to uh, to everyone in, in the hospital. And so Henry Cooper comes into our little section and comes up, shakes my hand, and then walks He's just off. about the most famous sportsman in Britain at that time, Fantastic. I imagine. Fantastic. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it was just, wow, this is, this is amazing. And I also discovered, you know, what tongues were for in kissing. If I can go down yeah, this road. Yeah, no, I want you know, to. Christmas is, is time for nurses to come around and give the patients a little bit of a lift. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, you know, this nurse comes up and gives me a kiss, and, and this tongue is starting to poke through my lips. And it's like, 
What? Hang on. What's all this about? Highly no. high. I mean, that, that, that's when the fifteen-year-old na- innocence it was. That's when the say. national service, the national health service, was the national <laughs> health service. Uh, would you say, Chris? Uh, finally, to end this section, bigger boost from the kiss from the nurse or Henry Cooper being in the in the in the ward? I think it's a combination of the two. Martin Taylor. Um, we've been hearing about Chris's development as a cricketer. Was the cricket master at Colston School in Bristol? What must seem like a long, long time ago now. Delight to say, join us on the line now. Hello, Martin. Hi, Danny. How are you? I'm very good indeed. Say hello to Chris. Hi, Chris. Martin, how are you? Be nice, won't you? Thank you. Be nice. Well, (laughs) I suppose the trade secret here is that I think we've got your number from Chris. I suppose you're going to be nice, Martin. Um, Oh, he knows I could be very different. I could be very different. Well, maybe he wouldn't be the man in the cricket he was if you weren't. Tell us about about the teenage teenage broad and, and, and his cricketing skills. Well, Chris, Chris was very determined. Uh, I mean, I, you, you know, everyone talks about Chris and his fiery temperament, fiery demeanour. He says that's um, over-exaggerated, and he threatened to hit me yeah. if I said it again. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, most, you know, we wouldn't really see that at school. I mean, he was just to be very competitive, uh, very determined. I mean, there was a group of youngsters at Colston's at that time uh, who were very com- competitive and competitive amongst themselves. And uh, Chris stood very tall amongst them uh, and was a successful cricketer, obviously. I mean, but uh, no matter how determined and t- talented a, a young person is, uh, Martin, they, 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 can, they can learn things from their own experience, but they can be taught things as well. Um, how recipient a pupil was he to your, uh, to your coaching? He was very good. I mean, not just my coaching. I mean, it, it, I was a young schoolmaster at the time and I was in charge of rugby. I just had to control these uh, chaps and keep them, <laughs> keep them on the right, right tracks. But, uh, I mean, we, we had at Colston's at that time a, a cricket pro, uh, Reg Sinfield, who uh, had played uh, for Gloucestershire and England, had one test match uh, at Trent Bridge, which uh, Chris was pretty pleased to go on there afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I mean, Chris was very good at listening to Reg. I mean, Reg was... Uh, I don't know what age he would have been in there, seventies or even eighties. I mean, Reg carried yes. on working wow. here till, and and Chris was good at listening. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know whether many other people would say that about him, but at that <laughs> age, <laughs> at that age, I was always impressed that that he had uh, good manners with with, you know, this quite an old chap, but he he did recognise that. Um, you know, Reg had a lot to offer him, and he listened. I just remember, um, I, I just remember Reg being in his little kit room, wearing his yeah. really, really old Gloucestershire jumper, which yeah. just so impressed me. The colours of the Gloucestershire jumper were just, you know, t- to die for, really. And yeah. and he was, you know, even when he came out and stood at Square Leg, he was a real fountain of knowledge. And to to listen to someone like that who's played county cricket and played international cricket and and maybe that was where you were going was was just an absolute mm. pleasure well listen it's been uh, sorry martin you're going to say i was just uh, about chris with 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 um with, with reg um because i think chris had, had been brought up uh, with cricket around him i think chris's mum and dad were very involved uh, at gloucestershire and i think chris was used to you know, listening to old pros. And I mean, old pros do go on, don't they? But, uh, <laughs> well, we're going to find that out. Well, I, hope, I hope I don't any longer. <laughs> no, no. Well, that's, uh, you know. And the other thing I'd say about Chris is that, um, you know, he's kept in touch with us all, kept in touch with the school. I mean, it's 40 years ago since he was at school and uh, he, he's still very much involved in what the old Colstonians are doing. We've got an old Colstonian cricket day here today and if you hadn't sneaked in, we yeah. might have had him here. Oh, well, <laughs> mate, there's always next year and uh, I don't suppose you'll be playing much cricket in the weather over Britain today anyway. Listen, Martin, it's been a pleasure and uh, enlightening to hear from you. Thank you very much indeed.
Not at all. Thanks, and, Martin. Uh, hope, hope your show goes well. Look forward to seeing you down at Colston soon, Chris. OK, will do. Yes, Martin Taylor, um, Chris's cricket master at Colston School, trying to give a lot of the uh, credit for your development to somebody else, which I always think is a sign of a, of a, pretty, a pretty good cove. Um, you, you, get, you do eventually uh, join uh, your mentor in wearing that Gloucester, uh, that beautiful coloured Gloucester jumper. By uh, You make your debut for the county, uh, a 21-year-old in 1979. What kind of cricket scene, what kind of Gloucester team did you come into? Uh, I, I remember I remember playing my making my debut at, Chel- at um, Cambridge and they dropped Sadiq Mohammed for for me so Pakistan a pretty good player. yeah Pakistan uh, opener for a Benson Hedges game so it's like whoa you know this is an international player and I'm taking taking over his role um, and it was listen I, you know I just enjoyed playing and I didn't really look at the at the bigger picture, if you like, it sure. was just I was offered the opportunity to go out there and play. Of course, I was nervous because Mike Proctor was captain of the team. A legendary man, of course. Zahir Abbas was in the in the side, Pakistan player. And you had Andy Stovall, David, David Graveney, yeah. John Childs, you know, lots of Brian Brain, lots of senior players. Uh, and yet here, uh, here was I being offered a debut, and and it was fantastic. There's something remarkable about this, isn't it? You were able to name the you know eight or nine members of the team that you played in as a youngster, and I was able to recognise most of them. It's not about our ages; it's to do with the stability of county cricket in those days. I must say, nowadays, it's hard to follow from one year to another who plays for what county. Or am I, or am I just getting a bit scattier? Uh, funny enough, I had a chat with David Morgan, who was given a role by the ECB to to look into county cricket, and he he the the abiding thing that he came up with was that actually it needs a structure needs a proper structure you you know in in years gone past you haven't really known when a county championship match starts when a t20 starts when a 50 over 40 over game starts and it's he scattergun now in it domestic is. cricket isn't and, it and he's come back with this plan to actually have certain matches starting on certain days so that the spectators know uh, which days they can go along and watch what type of cricket so you, you play uh, with Gloucester for I mean, your first century. I'll just mention that. I think we should mention that. 116 against Hampshire. What's your memories of that day? 116 against Hampshire. That, uh, a- that, uh, that was at Bristol. Is that right? I'd got 94 or 96. 96, I think it was, against Warwickshire, the previous match. And, uh, in fact, I think it was Northants I got my first 100 against. Okay. Peter Willey was playing for them. And, okay. And I remember um, scratching around. I'd got 96 the previous innings, and Mike Proctor came up to me when I was caught at cover, and he said, don't try and get to 100 in one shot. Try and do it in singles. So I remember on this particular occasion, Peter Willey was bowling, who was, I'm sure, then playing for Northants. Yeah. And he bowled me, you know, I was in the nervous 90s again. I was remembering what Proctor was saying. You've got to run it around. You've got to get the ones and twos. And I remember I was on 98, something like that. Sure. And he bowled me a, an arm ball. And I'd gone back to it. And I thought, if I'd missed this, I was in trouble. But I got an inside edge. And it went down past leg stump and I scampered through for two. No fielders there, that's good. Absolutely. And I and I remember celebrating what have you and my brother was at the game later on and he and I were sat down uh, having a drink in the bar afterwards and Peter Willey, current England player at that time, came up and shook my hand and I said to him, oh, I wasn't really the greatest innings ever. He said, never knock yourself getting three figures. Three figures is a really difficult score to get, well played, that's a hundred. Doesn't matter how you got it. That was so, that, that was very decent of him. That was it? very decent of him. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you play um, at Gloucestershire for five years. 
I don't want to be insulting to your home county. They're never really uh, challenging for honours. I've got, I've got, I can give you the run of league positions: tenth, seventh, thirteenth, fifteenth, twelfth. You then go and play for Nottinghamshire. What was behind that? You know, at the time, pretty much in what you said there, I didn't feel as though they were achieve, achieving anything. I remember in that the last year I had at uh, Gloucester, Andy Stovold had had a really good start to the year, wicketkeeper batsman. They were talking about him in the media as potentially being uh, an England player. And I wasn't aware, someone might have turned up, I wasn't aware of a selector coming down to Bristol to look at Andy Stovold. And that 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 kind of wrangle with me that actually if you start to put to together good performances and a selector doesn't turn up at the ground then how are you ever going to get selected so you know I kind of had discussions with some friends of mine in the team because it was and unusual people didn't didn't change no, counties quite so often no did that's they? right that's right um and and I just thought well actually if I'm going to achieve anything I've got to move county uh, and Why I've got to Nottinghamshire well uh, listen I went. I had issues with Gloucestershire at the time behind the scenes, and I inquired of the Professional Cricketers Association. You know, who are the people who have offered me contracts? And I was lucky enough to get, you know, half a dozen counties come in for me. Um, who of those counties were the best run? And without a shadow of a doubt, at that time, Notts was the best run county. And you look at their team, and they had Clive Rice as captain, Derek Randall, Richard Hadley. You know, Mike Hendrick played. You know, Eddie Hemmings played for them. Bruce French and Tim Robinson. Were and all for getting them. through to their international sides as well, to uh, England's team. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so, you know, for me, it was a no-brainer. You're going to an extremely well-run club. You're going to a test venue, which you know, take nothing away from Bristol, but you play at a test venue, you get a real feeling of uh, of achievement just walking out onto that field, <clears throat> and. And it was a good place to play. I'd played there and scored runs, so so I was very happy. And your plan worked because you were hardly at Nottinghamshire for a few weeks, and you're suddenly in the England team. Well, yes, that was <laughs> that was rather by misfortune in that uh, uh, in that Andy Lloyd was in the Test team at the time, and of course got felled by a Malcolm Marshall bouncer. Yeah, and when the, I said you were lucky, I don't suppose being picked for an England team to play against <laughs> a particular West Indies team qualifies as most idea people's idea of luck. I enjoyed fast bowling, so for me it was uh, it was a dream come true. And you were great, and you were great at it, weren't you? I, were, you were I truly, enjoyed it. You were a brilliant it. player. Fast bowling. Yeah. So, what do you remember about your test debut? I can tell you, um, you're pretty good. You're playing at Lords yeah. against the great West Indies side yeah. in the third test. Yeah. But I've got a quiz question. Oh, who, right. who opened the bowling for West Indies on that particular occasion? Oh my God! Now you're... I, I can I can tell you if you'd like. Me to. I'd like you to because I'm about to go through 17 pace bowlers. You're going to tell me. It was Clive Lloyd's cousin Milton Small. I wouldn't. If you'd given me a million yeah. guesses. No, oh, there you go. No, he was uh, making his his test debut, and Clive Lloyd felt that it was a good chance to get him on to uh, open the bowling, get the nerves out of the way. So it was Milton Small and uh, Joel Garner. So I, I tried to stay down Milton Small's end for as long as possible. Yes, sir, that's fair enough. If you're making your debut, you don't need to be getting anywhere near the Garner just yet. Um, Chris, we discussed earlier having gone to Nottinghamshire, and we'll talk um, very quickly making your debut. But you did establish yourself very quickly as a proper force in the in the county game, and in 1987, uh, the, the whole team comes together. I mean, you're always a good team at Nottinghamshire, as you said. Mm. In the first, you were there, eight, second, then eighth, and fourth, and 87, you win the county championship. Now I say mm. this 
because there will be people listening to our voices, younger people, who will not realise what a huge deal it was to win the county championship back in 1987. Well, it was a massive thing. You had to play well in, in pretty much most of the games that you played. Uh, first class, uh, one day, as I mean, we, we were a top team. We, were, we had some fantastic players in our team and it was expected of us to go out and, and uh, you know, achieve in virtually every competition we played in. I should make the point as well, this is before the Premier League, when people like me would buy a newspaper during the summer and see the latest championship news on the back pages yeah. of every newspaper. And five pages five pages in, it would just be the cricket scores and pictures of people like yourself on one knee knocking it out of the ground. <laughs> Those were the days, I'm afraid, for cricket. I don't know which paper you were reading that said I was knocking the ball out of the ground. That no. didn't happen very often. No, no, <laughs> maybe it was Derek Randall. I, 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 I think I so, yeah. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Tell us about the team that won the championship then. Well, uh, you know, it was a very, very good team made up of superstars with the likes of Richard Hadley and Mike Hendrick and and Clive Rice's Amazing attack. And and people who were perhaps not the stars. Kevin Saxelby, Kevin Cooper, um, Mike Bohr, um, Mick Newell, uh, Paul Johnson, those that didn't go on to play international cricket. But but were so important to our team because, you know, they would come in, they would score their runs and take their wickets at crucial times. And I would make the point again for the teenagers listening that this was before the leagues were divided into two. It was a tremendous schlep as well. as an awful lot of cricket played. And a lot of travelling. You know, yeah. north, south, We there were times when you used to get in the car after three days in the field and you'd be playing the next day, but you'd have to travel four or five hours overnight to get to the, the venue and then turn up and go out and play. I'm amazed that there weren't more accidents on the roads that involved <laughs> county cricketers, but fortunately we got through without too many issues. Well, listen, you mentioned one of the, if I might be uh, fair to him, one of the non-superstars in that team, but very much uh, a component in that great and uh, championship-winning team of 1987. I'm delighted to say um, that uh, he was your teammate there and he's the current Knotts coach, of course, Mick Newell. Hello, Mick. Hello, chaps. You all right? Very, very good indeed. What are your memories of that great team that won the championship in 87? And if you want to include Chris Broad's contribution, I'll happily (laughs) accept that. (laughs) Yeah, well, it was uh, funny. just made me think back there that some of the big name players, like Chris said, you know, we had an awful lot of international cricketers in our dressing room. You had Um, had a pretty good seam bowling attack, I suppose, say as well. We had a great scene bowling attack. I think uh, I used to stand at short leg to Richard Adley, Clive Rice, Mike Hendrick, like you say, and then Eddie Hemmings as well as a spin bowler. So you're always in the game at short leg. 
Um, and, and different times in the fact that people like Chris and Tim and, and that would go off to a test match and then return from a test match and play a county game straight away. So, you know, we saw a lot more of our international cricketers than we do nowadays. And I think that that was what must have been quite tough for them then playing county cricket on the back of a hard test match. Actually, I think I think you're probably right, Mickey. I mean, I, you didn't realise it at the time, but when you've been in front of a, a number of people supporting England at Lords or or Old Trafford or Headingley, and then you come back, and the, the great thing about Trent Bridge was that actually, you know, when it was whether it was empty or whether it was full, it was a terrific place to play. Um, but some of the lesser grounds to come back from a Test match and play uh, in front of two men and their dogs, you know, was a bit difficult from time to time. But we had to do it. That was the job. And, and you had to get on and do it. And when you're playing with a team that involved Clive Rice and Richard Hadley, who were desperate to win uh, on most occasions, then you also felt that you had to raise your game to come back and do it as well. Mick, tell us uh, about Chris as a batsman, because we haven't yet discussed what kind of player he was and how he was um, forcing his way into the England fluent team. Fluent on the offside, Mick. Don't forget, <laughs> fluent on the offside. <laughs> Chris was a, he was a terrific opening batsman. I mean, he took a challenge on by coming to Trent Bridge, which was a bowler-friendly ground at the time, as you mentioned, with, with Rice and Hadley having pitches prepared to suit them. So, you know, Chris took on a huge challenge coming here to open the batting I, I think it probably helped him play for England quicker than he might otherwise have done if he would have done at all so credit to him for that and, and you know he used to churn out the runs for us in county cricket and that's what got him the opportunity to play internationally The cliche now of course that now he's a highely respected referee of the game um, and arbiter of all Stop disputes. laughing and, will you? Stop and, laughing! And arbiter of all disputes Mick the cliche <laughs> yeah. is and I'm sure it's not true is that Chris was um, how can I put it, a bit hot tempered what's your view on that? Oh, well, yes, we had our moments. I mean, not, not particularly me uh, in direction at me. No, but no, no. Off, it was a fairly fiery dressing room with Rice and Hadley in it and, and, and Hemmings, who, who, you know, never had never short of an opinion. So, you know, Chris added to that. I don't think it was the most most harmonious dressing room that's ever existed at Trembridge, but it was certainly one of the most successful. And, you know, Clive Rice, as, as, um, as Chris mentioned, had a way of galvanising players who, to want to play better for him and for the club. We, we, we're going to talk later on and very soon about Chris's test career. I'm going to ask you a straightforward question, Mick, now in all seriousness. Do you think this fellow played enough for England? Uh, I, I think he would have played more probably in the modern era where, where chopping and changing of the team hasn't come about as much. You know, England very much stick with their players now. So, you know, I, Chris would know far better than I how many games he played and when he was replaced and who replaced him. But I think in this modern era, somebody who was scoring runs as heavily as he was at the time would have played more test matches because England would have stuck with players for longer. Well, Mick, it's been a, been a, a treat to talk to you and just to get some brief memories of that great Nottinghamshire team of the mid-80s. Thank you very much indeed. No, no problem. Any Cheers, Mick. Mick Newell, still very much, of course, involved with Nottinghamshire to this day. In fact, we t- we'll talk then about, about um, the chopping and changing that he talked about there. It meant that you played those couple of tests against the West Indies. Um, then a one-off test against Sri Lanka. I think mm. that's fair to say. Mm. Um, you made 86, so you were you know, establishing yourself in the team. But then you didn't go for the Ashes uh, series of 85. Is that right? Uh, well, it was India that winter. Yeah. Um, and I, I would... Uh, Apparently was told by Alan Lee, who was then the Times journalist, that uh, at a reception on the Saturday night uh, that I'd batted myself out of going to India because I'd batted so slowly. We had a Chris Tavery and I had a really dodgy 
middle session in in the play, even though I'd scored 86, uh, it was clear that I wasn't fluent in playing spin bowling, and uh, and I was really Hang upset on, by. To be, to be fair, Chris, if you can't look fluent when you're batting with Tavre, you're <laughs> you really must have been having an off day. <laughs> but you know, to be told by a journalist that I'd batted myself out of it, I was a little upset. But sure enough, it proved to be right that I didn't then go to India, and I I was. Uh, out of the team for two years until I got selected to go to Australia in '86. Who, who was who were the openers um, that you were competing with at that time in the, in and in and around the England team? Well, uh, Tim Robinson was one. Uh, your uh, teammate Ma- at Nottinghamshire. Martin Moxon was another. Um, uh, uh, Bill Athey was on the scene; he'd played, but it you know mm-hmm. wasn't really Graham Gooch. Of course, was uh, in and around the setup. Wilf Slag was another one who was. Bless who him. was being yeah. uh, talked about. Um, so there were a number of openers around at the time. So Graham Fowler, of course. Why, yeah. How could I forget Graham yeah, Fowler? Graham, absolutely. So eventually you are picked then, and I'm building up something here. You're, you're picked for the Ashes series in Australia that covers 86 and 87. Mm. Um, what do you remember about the build-up to that and what were your hopes for that series? I think everyone at the end coming towards the end of a season everyone picks their touring team and an awful lot of people were picking me uh, to be part of that uh, touring team and and then you know I passed a, a couple of touring teams by which I felt I had a chance of getting on so I was scoring a lot of runs at this time yeah so yeah. and I was I was feeling in good nick and 86 was a good year for me at uh, Knott's and and I you know I wanted to go of course I did um, so I wasn't building up too many hopes after the disappointment of 84. But then to hear my name mentioned uh, in the squad was just a, a massive, massive boost. And um, and I remember turning up, you know, taking it on a couple of uh, couple of weeks, turning up to the hotel to uh, to go to Australia. And uh, there was Ian Botham and, you know, Phil DeFratis and Mike Gatting and Alan Lamb and all these sort of people and Eric Clapton. And it's like, Eric, was he in the team? I'm sh- <laughs> I missed that meeting. I'm sure, I'm sure I didn't have uh, Eric Clapton down in my team, but there he was. And he'd come to wish the boys well and obviously knew both of them quite well, rock and roll yeah. cricketer. Um, and, and, it, and that was the start of our trip to Australia. You know, throughout our trip to Australia, we had uh, Genesis were over there. Elton John was following us around. Phil Collins was over there. You know, it was just amazing. It was a real rock and roll tour. Chris, what happens next, what we're going to talk about in this, uh, in this section of the show, um, England against Australia in the, for the Ashes, as we know, coming up over the next 12, and it's really a year of it coming up now, 10 successive tests, mm. is one of the great sporting arenas. And it's there that legends are made. And what happened to you, or put it more positively, what you did over those next three months in Australia um, has you down in my world as a legend because uh, it's just an incredible, incredible series for you. Um, I suppose we'll start chronologically, if you like. What do you remember about um, the uh, November 86, the first test in Brisbane? Um, you got into the team, obviously, and uh, off you go from there. Yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, I remember the first month of the tour not being terribly successful for the England team because there was... Uh, you know, no one was scoring runs. No one was really taking wickets. Uh, you know, we we didn't start auspiciously. And uh, Martin Johnson from the Independent then wrote just prior to the start of the Test match that England can't bat, they can't bowl, and they can't field. One of the most famous uh, pieces of cricket writing of all time. And I suppose that poor Absolutely. man has been forced to eat those words. Yeah, time he and must time be sick again. of that diet, mustn't he? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, most of the senior players had been to Australia before and they knew the warm-ups were just that. I'm they just looking at the names but below your own here in the batting lineup. I'm looking at the names of Gatting, Lamb, Gower, Botham. These are not legendary preparers. These are legendary players, aren't exactly. they? Exactly. Yeah. And I think I think they enjoyed the social side of Australia much more in the in the first mm. month of the tour mm. than, than the cricketing side. So when Ian Botham stood up at the... Uh, pre-match dinner that we always had before a test match and he said if if any of you bleep bleep bleeps you know walk when you're in this test match you'll have me to answer to you then knew that it was serious this is this is a serious game of cricket and of course he then went out and scored 135 in the first innings and smashed the Australians all around the park um and and Edmonds and Embury picked up wickets in the second innings. There was also a rest day, which fell so well for us because we'd been in the field for a day, a, a day and a bit maybe, and then there came a rest day. So we recharged the batteries, came back, and we we bowled them out uh, on on the following day. So it just worked perfectly for us, and we ended up uh, you know not having a very auspicious start to the tour, but then winning the first Test match. And when when you're one nil up after one Test match, you're in a very, very strong position. Yeah, you opened with Bill Athey, um, the Yorkshireman. You made uh, 8 and 35 not out. I also will tell you that in the middle of all this, you did make your one-day debut for England, but we'll come back uh, to that in just a little while because it's in the second, third and fourth tests that uh, you come into your own. And as I said, I mentioned the names of uh, Hobbs and Hammond there. You've established a place for yourself in the pantheon of English cricket by scoring centuries in all three of those games. I remember it was the first series I think the BBC ever showed any live coverage of. Mm. So I, I can remember being square-eyed up all night watching. <laughs> yes. Well, what I seemed to watch all through the winter was you batting, if I'm absolutely <laughs> truthful, talking about Perth, of course, the, the Western Australia, the Wacker, bouncy, bouncy pitch, 162 for you as England make 592. Count those. Yeah, listen, we won the toss and it was a belter. Uh, Bill Athey and I put on, I think, 223 for the right? first, first wicket. Um, and Bill, unfortunately, got out for 96, I believe, something like that. But uh, uh, I remember being 140-odd not out overnight and coming back the next morning and not being able to play anywhere like the way that I played the previous day. Cricket's weird, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, all sports is weird. You look at a golfer. A golfer can come out and play beautifully and get six or seven under par one day and then really struggle the next day, struggle with his swing and all the rest of it. So, uh, you know, th that taught me a lesson that actually f start each day as though you're on naught. Can you remember getting to your 100? I do remember getting to my 100. And uh, Greg Matthews was the bowler, off-spinner. And he bowled me one on leg stump, uh, a half volley, and I worked it around to square leg. And I, uh, I remember almost getting down to the bowler's end and saying, "Thanks, mate," and oh, then well. running back and taking the two to to celebrate the hundred. Well, the the, the leg stump half volley to get to your test century against Australia couldn't uh, have been a better ball, could well, it? The cricket te the, the the Christmas test isn't for another two months. That's so right. That was very That's good of him, right. wasn't yeah. it? England drew that game, um, and you, I don't know whether you, as you say, one day you're great and the next day things don't quite click for you. Um, so I can't call this a supernatural run of form, but your good form continues with a third test in Adelaide, um, where again in the first innings you make another 100, 116. What are your re recollection of that game? Well, I remember um, uh, Mike Gatting and I put together a, a quite a lengthy partnership. He won, went on to get 100 and, and I went on to get 100. Um, uh, I remember, strangely, bizarrely, I remember 
a pain in my foot. We had these real uh, thin-soled Nike shoes that were given to us before uh, we went on tour. Uh, very comfortably, generally, but then you come and play on really hard Australian pitches. And I liked batting in studs. I know an awful lot of people from Australia bat in flats, but I liked batting in studs, so it gave me grip when I was running to and from each end. And I remember the, the stud just playing up with, with my foot, and um, but you know it obviously didn't affect my form and um, Merv Hughes bowled me a bouncer and I remember Greg Ritchie from uh, mid on it, it actually sat me on my bum Greg Ritchie from mid on shouted you know smell the leather there son you know all that sort of stuff and uh, original he, yeah <laughs> he got a he got a uh, telling off from Alan Border <clears throat> excuse me uh, after the after the day because I'd ended up getting a hundred and he said whatever you do don't say anything to Chris Broad again because it clearly fired him up. He's now got another bloody hundred, you know. <laughs> the match ended in a draw, which takes us on to Melbourne. Um, to me, one of the great sporting events anywhere in the world, anytime when England play Australia, they always start it on Christmas Day. It's Christmas Day, or it's Boxing, Boxing Day. Day. Boxing Day, Day yeah. Day, yeah. So it's Christmas Day here for us when, they, when the first ball is bowled. Yep. Um, I've usually um, uh, sat full of turkey and advocar, and then, uh, you know, England lose the toss and, uh, and all the rest of it. <laughs> uh, 100,000 people, and England win the test by an innings they slap Australia in the Boxing Day test and you in the only innings we had get, get another hundred a third successive hundred in Ashes test matches mm. I mean they don't write this is a boys own story this is beyond Royal de Rovers isn't it well we we put them in and bowled them out very cheaply and I think I was on about 50 odd overnight um, and went out the following day and completed this hundred mm. I had no view, no knowledge of records or, or, or anything of that sort um, but then to be told that I was linked with Hobbs and Hammond, uh, who are two absolute legends of the game, well, was destroyed it. Yeah, was astonishing. Was astonishing. But I was just doing my job. You know, my I was an opening batsman out there playing for England. My job was to see off the new ball and get as many runs as possible. And but I, I do recall in that particular innings, being in the 90s and being so much more nervous uh, for that hundred than I was the previous two. Um, and fortunately, I managed to scamper a single when I was on 99 to get to 100. And, you know, the, the whole place erupted, even though it was the second day and Australia weren't doing very well. There was still an extremely good crowd in there and the whole place erupted. It was fantastic. You talked about Alan Boulder uh, telling um, his fellow Australians to, not to uh, fire you up. Um, but when you've scored that kind of runs against Australia... We, we, I mean, we all know how competitive they are at sport, hopefully not too competitive this summer. Yes. Um, uh, what was their response to you? I mean, when you beat up an Australian team, I don't know whether they'll be shouting at you and hoping that you're going to fall down in front of them or whether they say, well done, mate. Actually, I remember a, a comment from John Edridge, a uh, great Surrey and England uh, batsman, before I went to Australia. And, uh, you know, he said to me, go out and enjoy yourself. Go out and, and get the Australians on your side. They appreciate good cricket. And... And that's as I found it, to be honest. Yes, there was a bit of abuse and verbals from uh, from the the players themselves, but I, I never let it affect me. I was ne I was never one to react to a, what a bowler or a fielder said. I just put my head down and got on with it. Um, but the crowds, when when you'd scored runs, they were very appreciative. They would always clap you in. 
you know, if they got the chance, slap you on the back saying, well done, mate, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and lots of them, when you're in hotels and what have you, would want to buy you beers and, uh, and, and celebrate your success with themselves. So it was actually uh, a really sound piece of advice that John Edridge gave me, w- which came true. England, of course, won that as well to put themselves uh, 2-1 ahead. You lost, as, as traditional in those days, lost the last test. Yeah, I the, presume, the dead rubber, yes. I presume a, cer- a certain amount of cold drinks had been taken prior to the match. <laughs> I'm just guessing. Um, and you find yourself at the end of 87, International Cricketer of the Year. Um, given that you couldn't get into the England team 18 months before that, that must have been very satisfying. It was uh, amazing. I, Richard Hadley had played in Australia the previous year and he was international cricketer that year. And so I, a fellow Knots cricketer, had, uh, had had followed him in that footsteps, in, in, in those footsteps. So it was a tremendously proud moment. And I remember even before it being announced, Graham Morris, who was a, a photographer of some repute, follows the England setup around uh, while I was playing, is still doing it now. He said to me, I need a photograph of you down with the car because there was this Alfa Romeo as the prize at the MCG and it hadn't been announced yet. And uh, and I said, well, you know, I'm not sure I can do this. Yes, you can. You're fine. Yeah, come on, just help me out here. Just So we went down and we had this photograph taken with me just dangling a set of car keys sitting on the bonnet of this car. Uh, he wanted the scoop, so uh, he probably owes me a pint or two, actually, well, which I'm not sure he's paid. But anyway, that's fine. Talk about contrast. That triumphant tour of uh, Australia is followed later on, um, 87, by the tour of Pakistan, a tour in which we all remember Mike Gatting, um, international incident, government's been called in when he rowed with Shaka Rana. But you're already, prior to that, this was, this was a test series played out in, in not great spirit, I think it's fair to say. And, of course, everyone remembers um, the first test controversy where, how can I put it, you got out and you didn't walk. Um, and you stood there even when you were given out um, in a way that I don't suppose you'd approve of these days with your current employment. Mm. Um, and it, people were... I mean, it really was a big, big deal. You stood there for nearly half a minute before Graham. I think Graham Gooch eventually kind of advised you that it might be best to leave the arena. 22 seconds. Oh, you've timed it, it, have you? (laughs) Well, I was told it was 22 seconds. Okay. But it stemmed from... It's a lifetime, isn't it? it, Well, it is, actually. If you just look at your watch for 22 (laughs) seconds, it it is a long time, yes. Um, But it stemmed from uh, Pakistan toured England uh, six months previously. Yes. And they weren't happy with some of the umpiring that was going on. And I remember this was the days when we still had home umpires. Yes, or was it? yeah, it was both yeah. home umpires. And yeah. I remember uh, uh, the Pakistanis saying at a press conference at the end of the tour, you know, aside from thank you and all the rest of it, you know, wait till you come to Pakistan and and you have our umpires to face. So I think, and, and Imran Khan had, had announced his retirement from Test cricket. So Javid Miandad was going to take over. An the entirely captaincy. different character. Entirely different. So. Uh, we got to Pakistan and we knew it was after the World Cup. So we, you know, we'd played successfully in the World Cup, went back to tour Pakistan, won the one day series 3-0. So we were still in very good spirits. Come to the first test match, completely different. You know, the umpires were very much in favour of the Pakistanis. Um, I remember Abdul Qadir bowling, uh, getting Mike, Mike Gatting out, LBW. But uh, bowling a f- what he called a flipper, running down, appealing to the umpire, saying it's a flipper, it's a flipper, and and the umpire giving him out, and then I was, as you rightly say, I was given out, caught behind when I hadn't hit the ball, 
And I just said, no, 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 this is just not right. I'm sorry, I'm not going for it. Until Graham Gooch came down and said, oh, Brody, I think you better go, mate. <laughs> so we went off for tea and... Uh... That's my favourite ever impression of Graham Gooch. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, we ended up, in fact, you know, losing that test match 1-0, but we had a real chance of levelling it in the second test match, which is when the Shakur Rana and Mike Gatting thing happened. Well, listen, that's one of the things we'll come on to in the second hour of my sporting life, Shakur Rana and all that, as it's known. Uh, you played in two of the most amazing series uh, ever uh, for England, the, the big win down under against Australia, and then the follow-up uh, against uh, Pakistan, which could not have been a less happy tour in many, many ways. We've heard about your own... Uh, problems in one of the tests and of course that was followed by the uh, the, the incident between Mike Gatting and Shaka Rana which um, quite apart from its cricketing ramifications it, it soured international relations what do you remember about that game? I remember it uh, knocking off the rest of the world news on BBC's headlines we were number one story uh, in, in, uh, in the BBC's nine o'clock news then uh, I remember uh, the match starting reasonably well the pitch looking as though uh, it was a result pitch, which was surprising after Pakistan won the first test match. We thought it was just going to be a very, very bland surface for us to play on. We won the toss. We batted. Um, I managed to get 100, you know, or, uh, trying to uh, knock back all these critics of my not all playing All forgotten and missed the time now, well, that, of course. Man of the match I was. <laughs> yeah. I, I went up to collect the man of the match award in a, in a match that really only lasted two and a half days. Um, but... Um, yeah, and, and then, of course, the famous incident with Mike and Shakurana. But we were we had them five down, chasing another another wicket before the close of play on the end of the second day. And we brought the, te the field up to save Salim Malik from getting down to the other end to sure. play out the last over. We wanted another over at the night watchman. And David Capel had come in from square leg, deep square leg to square leg. And Mike, who was just fielding behind the batsman on the square leg side and had told the batsman that he was bringing the square leg up, had just seen that he'd come in too far and just held his hand out. You know, the palm of his hand was to the fielder to say, basically, don't come in any further. You're too yeah. close. And Shakurana uh, at square leg saw Mike do this. And most notably for me, although it wasn't shown very often, was a picture from the square leg camera where he looked at his watch after seeing this. He looked at his watch and seen that there was only two or three minutes left. So he then walked up and said, whoa, 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 you can't do this, you can't do this. And he then mentioned the word cheat. And of course, it was a very volatile situation, quite, quite hectic. And, and as soon as someone calls Mike a, a cheat, you know, he's instantly going to react. So he came back and said, no, no, you're a cheat. And anyway, we didn't get that last over in. We came off the field and... And, and the was... world goes nuts over that photograph of finger pointing between the two of them, taken by the self-same Graham Morris, the yeah. only person who got that picture, yeah. uh, made his career. And you should say he's still working off of it today. Brilliant photographer, of course, there is that. Um, but let's uh, say we can uh, catch up now by being joined uh, by former England captain, of course, and former uh, p person in that seat where you all sit now, Chris, Mike Gatting. Hello, Mike. Hi, how you doing? Very, very good. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, um, actually, uh, I don't want to talk to you about Shaka Run and all that, Mike, because, frankly, we, you've come in here and given us <laughs> chapter and verse on it. What we need to do is talk about that stunning um, time when, for, a, for a, you know, it was a brief time, I think it's fair to say, 
but where Chris Broad was just batting people to pieces for the England team. Talk about his contribution to the particular that tour of Australia. And I'm listening as well. Yeah. He's, listening, he's making notes. He's taking notes. <laughs> no, look, we, we uh, you know, when, when people sort of looked at uh, who, who we were picking when we went out on the trip, and it was quite interesting that Mickey Stewart, who was the uh, was the team coach, and myself sat down and picked the team. There was only probably one one uh, one one problem, and Broadie wasn't it. So, you know, Mickey Stewart had come in and uh, said, yeah, Chris Broad, definitely good thing, plays quick bowling well. Exactly the sort of person we need, and you know, Middlesex have always respected uh, Chris for his, the way he should, used to play Wayne Daniel and people like that. So um, it was only when the slow and medium paces come on he struggled a bit. But I mean, uh, anyway, he uh, he he uh, he started off a bit slowly, but um, like on, all of us, Mike, you ought to be very careful about going on about people's record against slow bowling. I just pointed out to Chris that when your name comes up on the computer in front of me, it just says Mike Gatting, Ball of the Century. Yeah, I know. We mustn't talk about that again. <laughs> Oh, we've done that to death in the last uh, three uh, weeks you anyway. Mu- you must be pale from talking about it, Mike. Oh, we are. We are. We, we've been very pale talking about it. It's been one of those, uh, what I say, one of June the 3rd. It's always there, June the 3rd, 1993. Um, yeah, and, on, and it comes up moving swiftly on. Happy anniversary, <laughs> Mike. Broad, Broad, he wants to talk about it. He likes to hear that how, how well he played, but he did. He played awfully well. And actually, the other, other part of the partnership that didn't get mentioned a lot during that trip was was Bill Athey. Yes. And they both really played exceptionally well. One left, one right. Both played differently. Um, and they, they really gave us some great starts. And the, the nice thing about Jess was, was that, you know, he, he just wanted about all day. And, and um, you know, once he got in the groove and he got got his confidence up and that, he just carried on and he didn't care about anything else. just wanted to bat. He loved batting. And, and it was just ideal for us. And, um, you know, going from sort of Perth, um, uh, getting a hundred, then then on to Adelaide, and then on to to the most important one, really, on a, on a on not so good sort of good pitch. And you know, if you talk about the best hundred, that was without doubt the best hundred at uh, I think anyway at, at Melbourne, where the wicket was slightly uh, more helpful to the bowlers um, because Adelaide was quite flattened and Perth is an absolute belter of a wicket. Um, you know, but they had some they had some really good bowlers and uh you know, being a left hand, we probably negated one of them in, in, in Bruce Reed and um you know, for me he was their bowler of the of the series and uh, they had another young people charging in like uh, uh Merv Hughes and uh you know, Craig McDermott and uh, Jeff Lawson, one or two others and they had some left armers because they thought we were weak against them. But you know, Chris played against them all, he, he got in there and he made a, a huge contribution which enabled us to uh have the runs on the board to attack and bowl, bowl them out with our two spinners and our seam attack. Mike, it's always good to talk to you, and I promise, I promise from the bottom of my heart that next time you come on, we'll talk more about the thousands of runs you made for England and the hundred, <laughs> the, the tons of centuries you made as well, and never mention S. Warner Squire again. How about that? <laughs> oh, he wasn't a bad bloke, he wasn't a bad bowler either. <laughs> OK, listen, that's the great Mike Gatting. Um, just reiterating what we know about the that brilliant series that Chris Broad had then the, the Pakistan series though um, it all goes down into history and all the rest of it and extraordinarily I mean you could argue you're already heading out of the England team because you didn't play that many more games did you? Uh, no we we came back from that tour uh, and I think it was uh, West Indies were the were the next opposition in England 88 and, yeah and but you didn't lose all five tests <clears throat> that England team but I think you only played a couple didn't you? That's right in a 4-0 uh, defeat I mean of course that was the year that was the year that they went through five different captains, I think, after uh, Mike had a, a little bit of an indiscretion uh, in in Nottingham. 
um, and then was sacked from the captaincy, and we went through five different captains of the series, which Can was you clearly who they were. Can you help me with that? Uh, they were Gatting, uh, Embury, yes, was next. Uh, Cowdery was next. Chris Cowdery at, at got, had one cap as captain. Yes. Gooch, Gooch was next, and I think Pringle took over from Gooch. Extraordinary. So uh, I mean, that, it was that, an that, extraordinary. To be fair, summer. that was the panic that West Indian team had put through world cricket, wasn't it? Uh, and and uh, and our selectors, yeah. we were still in that mode of you know, if you don't perform in one or two test matches, then you're out. And and we must have gone through. I think it was somewhere in the region of 34 players in that particular series, which is an extraordinary number of players to to come and to be asked to come and play for England. Um, and and clearly we lost that series and uh, and and I got left out and then didn't go on a winter tour then came back in the following summer for two matches against Australia and then that was the end of my career 25 tests six centuries that's pretty good going I would I'd, I'd say because you take you you know five or six tests to get going all of them overseas oddly enough um, I asked earlier on um, one of our guests the question whether you'd played enough test cricket um, I think it was Mike Newell um, I'll, I'll answer my own question. You didn't, but that was as much to do with the way the team was being picked, as you've just mentioned. And it doesn't matter now; it's all a quarter of a century ago. Um, rather than anything to do with your talent, because I think in the modern game, without having to blow smoke screens in your general direction, you would have had fifty or sixty caps, wouldn't you? Well, I was frustrated, of course, by not being able to settle into a regular uh, spot, particularly after performances overseas. But you know, you come back and. And I wouldn't score enough runs in England, and and of course, you know that's that's just the nature of the beast. I think had we had a setup like we have today, when I was playing back in the eighties, and you had coaches around who would take you aside, show you videos, try and work with you, and improve your game, then I think I would have played a lot more international matches. But there wasn't that regime at that time, and you were very much left to seeking out your own. Uh, mentors and finding out how to play in certain situations and and that that was difficult to do for me I found so I I kind of floundered on home pitches uh, but enjoyed my time when I played overseas and it reflected in the scores that I got well as I say um, I don't think you played enough for England but uh, if I might quote from the closing uh, scene of Casablanca, Chris, you'll always have Australia. You'll always have Australia. And uh, having gone back uh, to your native county, Gloucestershire, for a short while, a hip injury forces your retirement in 1994 from first-class cricket. So let's fast forward then from your retirement as a first-class cricketer uh, to 10 years later, roughly nine years later. We'll ignore the fact you were bringing up future generations of England cricketers and things <laughs> like that. Um, uh, and in 2003, you become an ICC Test official. Now, I described this on Twitter this morning. I was saying how excited it was to meet you as uh, poacher turned gamekeeper. But let's ignore that because it is a bit of a cliche. Um, let's talk about... Just tell me what an ICC official, uh, the match referees do. Well, a match referee is, in its simplest form, we are ICC's representative at each, each and every international match. Um, the ICC is based in Dubai. It was based in London, but it's now based in Dubai. And obviously there's a time difference between Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere. So they obviously can't be awake all the time to answer any, any issues that crop up during international matches. So we are employed to be at those venues 
uh, and answer any issues that come up and, and keep the game moving forward. So you've got the, the umpires, the on-field umpires. These days we have a third umpire um, looking at... Uh, and a fourth umpire. Indeed. And so some of them are looking at the technology. That's not your job. Your job is in case there is a dispute or and indeed when uh, players kick their stumps over and things like that, you might be forced to come down and say that's not such a great the idea. The umpires look after the game. They, yeah. they uh, administer the game and make sure the game works. I, my role is basically to check that all the facilities are up to speed, um, that when we go to the, the ground, the pitch looks OK, the outfield looks OK. Uh, any player in discipline during the game, I'm there to be able to answer any issues there or anything else that crops up during the game. And, and then at the end of the game, I write a report on how the test match has gone, how the officials have done, um, and hand it back to the ICC. Do you mind me asking how you got that job? I don't suppose they advertise it in the Evening Standard, do they? A chap called Alan Fordham from the ECB phoned me up in 2001 or two, maybe, uh, and said, ICC are looking for some new match referees. Do you fancy being one? Uh, so I had no idea what an ICC match uh, official was, and I said, yep, that'd be great. Would you come down for an interview? So I came down to Lords for an interview with Malcolm Speed and Sunil Gavaska, who were chief executive and chairman of cricket at that particular time. Didn't know what they were going to ask me. Didn't, as I, as I said, didn't know what the job was. And they said, you know, what do you think? So I gave a kind of version of of being like a father of a, a head of a family type thing. They clearly liked what they heard. Uh, didn't initially get me on the full panel, but offered me a reserve panel. Uh, so I got the uniform, I got the jacket, I got the trousers, the shirt, the tie, all this sort of stuff. And that sat in the closet for about 18 months until they gave me a job down in New Zealand. New Zealand versus Pakistan was my first job. And of course, um, it means that you now follow the sun and you're doing these tests all over the world, which is great for you because you still love the cricket, everything to do love with it. the game. Love it. And it's a, it's a dream job, therefore. Um, and hopefully most of you just have to write at the end of it, lovely test match, everyone played in good spirit and uh, the umpires were fantastic. But it doesn't always turn out like that. And of course... In 2009, and what is it with you and Pakistan, Chris? In 2009, I mean, I'm, we're laughing about it now, but of course you were part of one of the most, no, the most horrible thing that's ever happened in cricket mm. when the uh, Sri Lankan team bus and you were in the with the officials in the car behind it was attacked by terrorists uh, in Pakistan. Tell us about that day. Yeah, I mean, the first two days had gone without incident. The the pitch was very flat. The security was, was very good. We were going in convoy to the the ground, the two buses and the match officials bus, plus, you know, police escorts and what have you. And we'd got into the ground and, and everything was fine. This third morning, um, not unusually, you know, the batting side decided that they would just hang back a little bit um, because, you know, they didn't have to go out and do a lot of fielding practice and what have you. So the Sri Lankan team bus and the match officials bus set off with this police convoy and the Pakistan bus was, you know, maybe five or ten minutes behind. So we got to the Liberty Roundabout, which is about half a mile away from the ground, um, and everything slowed down and all the traffic was stopped at the roundabout. There were police at every uh, junction. And then all of a sudden... There was a popping sound, and uh, you know, not being from a country that uh, carries guns or fires guns very, very often in the street, I had no idea what was going on. But the 
third umpire who was sat next to me, Asan Raza, said, get on the floor of the bus. So, you know, we'd come to a halt. The Sri Lankan bus had stopped. We'd come to a halt behind the bus alongside an ambulance. And we were told to get on the, the floor of the bus. For the next 10, 12 minutes, I was unaware of anything going on aside from <clears throat> I was aware that our driver was shot. Um, I was aware of bullets flying around because the bus was being hit on a number of occasions. And then, you know, halfway into it, I, I was aware that Asan Raza had been hit because he was he was obviously moaning and he was praying oh, to his God. God. And I saw all this blood. It was the most amazing amount of blood. And I just, having seen lots of films where, you know, someone comes up and puts pressure on a, a wound, I automatically just, you know up against him I put my hand on his back and tried to stop this blood from you could see where the blood was coming from yeah yeah, yeah from from the middle of his back so I put my hand on that and tried to stem the flow of, of blood um, but the attack continued so I was unaware of anything that was going on at, at the time because we were obviously below window level and didn't know what was going on but one, once Asan had been hit you know we were more aware that this was this was quite serious all of a sudden, the sliding side door of the van opened and there's this chap with a blackberry in a black uniform with a handgun in his hand looking at us. And, and I, I thought at that time, oh, my God, this is it. We're all going to go. But he jumped in. He was a member of the security forces. You had no way of knowing that. No idea. No. He jumped into the bus, closed the door behind him and took, took refuge. Um, so... I tried to shout to him, say, come on, we've got to get out of here, get in, because I knew the driver was dead, get into the van and drive, drive get into yeah. the front seat and drive us out of here. And he didn't speak English terribly well, so he kept saying, I can't drive, can't, I can't drive. Can't. So I was saying, get in the van, just get us out of here. Eventually, things calmed down, quietened down, and another of these police officers in black came to the driver's door unceremoniously grabbed the driver slung him out of the door onto the uh, onto the concrete onto the tarmac got into the the driver's seat and drove us to the ground so we got to the ground um, and then there was all these police around with their machine guns and what have you I mean it was just mind-blowing what was happening so the door opened again out everyone out everyone out so they dragged poor us on again unceremoniously out of the the van onto the dusty street and you know put him there and so I'm then out next and and then the rest of the guys Simon Taffel Steve Davis Peter Manuel all these guys get out of the bus and we're just told get in the get in the ground go in the ground straight away so clearly we ran into the ground into the umpire's room and as soon as, soon as we reached the sanctuary of the umpire's room we all took stock it was like wow you know what happened there that was ridiculous so being the match referee, I have a, a local phone. So uh, I thought, well, you know, I, I better just find out what's going on. So I told the umpires to stay in the room. And um, this was after we'd all had a group hug and, uh, you know, a few tears were, sure. were, uh, were, were, you know, we all, we all had our moment of uh, emotion. I went to the players area to find out what was going on. And sure enough, there were Sri Lankan players there, and I found out that one or two of them had been hit by shrapnel, and 
Uh, one in particular was quite seriously hurt and there were others that were being patched up and and then saw the reality of, of what went on but, but then heard that they'd actually got out. So came back, spoke to the umpires, had the phone, I phoned my kids. Stuart was in the West Indies uh, with England at the time. Gemma, my daughter, was in Australia with the Women's World she Cup at the time. She the cricket as well, not yeah, she? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they were aware of the situation. I then handed the phone to all the other umpires. They then phoned their partners. Um, and it wasn't for about three or four hours before it was... Because it was... It was nine o'clock in the morning Pakistan time, which was about four o'clock in the morning UK time. So as far as UK people, they wouldn't have woken up and, and seen it until you know another three or four hours later. So it then hit the, the news. So I wanted to let sh- make sure that everyone knew at home what was going on and that, that most of us were safe. Asan Raza? Asan Raza was hit twice. Um, he had probably three weeks in hospital but came out and uh, has made a probably a 99% recovery. I mean, he's, he's absolutely fine, but there is, a, there is a certain section of his midriff that has no feeling in it. So obviously one of the bullets has uh, cut some nerves somewhere and, and he doesn't have feeling Do in his midriff. you think you contributed to him being, being, still being alive? Did did you I? Think you contributed. I, yeah. Listen, I I don't know. Is the is the simple answer? I'm not a medical man. I just automatically uh, did what I thought was right, and um, I hope so. Yeah. Because he's there, you know, because he's still alive and he's still umpiring. So I hope it had an effect. Um, but you know, he is. He made it through, and uh, and I have worked with him since, and it's great to see him doing so well. But there are still issues in Pakistan, which is why international cricket is not being played there. And why I guess, um, having heard that, and thank you, that was spellbinding, um, you won't be going back to Pakistan anytime soon. It's it's not on my holiday list, no. Another aspect of your life more recently that's been uh, uh, well recorded, but I think we have to talk about here, um, is uh, the fact that your, your wife, Michelle, a few years ago, um, had a terrible disease and eventually committed suicide. Um, I think we should start with the positive side of this first because, of course, um, there's a lovely part of this story in that two of you find each other in middle age. It's a middle-aged romance, isn't it? Yeah, I, I um, uh, left my initial relationship with my first wife. Um, and then, yes, I mean, Misha and I found ourselves at a golf event, funnily enough. She worked for the European Golf Tour and I was a, a golf promoter, isn't she? A yeah. keen, yeah. keen um, golfer myself. So we met there and uh, and started a relationship um, in 2000. So we had, you know, 10 years together. Yeah. Um, but she uh, was in Australia on another golfing event when she noticed that she was slurring her words or someone noticed for her that sure, she was slurring her sure. words. Now, you know, Misha liked a glass of wine like everyone else, but she'd only had one glass of wine on this occasion, so couldn't understand why she wasn't able to speak normally. She went to a doctor in in Australia who then sent her on to a specialist in Australia who I asked after uh, Misha died, and I, I'd saw him, seen him in Perth um after the she died and said did you know then that it was motor neurone disease and she he said yes i thought it was but she he was uh, mish was sent to um, professor pam shaw at sheffield uh, university hospital 
for a, a proper diagnosis, and she was diagnosed in 2009 with having motor neurone disease. And that's, uh, I mean, you know, you probably know the exact terms. It's one of those diseases that attacks the nervous system, and you lose um, movement. And uh, well, I think the mind it, remains. The uh, mind absolutely. and some of your internal organs remain uh, in in perfect working order, but unfortunately, the the body just shuts down, and so. You become, in, in Misha's words, you become a blob. And that's something that she didn't want to become, which is why, in the end, she ended up taking her own life. How, how quickly does this condition um, take Well, over? it varies. I was with an MND sufferer today who was diagnosed in 2006, and she is still living and has a, a, a certain range of movement, um, uh, even to this day. So it's seven years on. But on average, with the diagnosis that Mish had, you generally last between 14 and 16 months after diagnosis. So it's quite a quick, and it's incurable. There is no cure for motor neurone disease. So if you have motor neurone disease, it is a death sentence. Um, so when the professor said after diagnosis, don't, whatever you do, go and look on the internet and find all about it. Of course, what do you do? You, you go and look to. on yeah, the you're internet. Human being. You're find... human beings. Absolutely. So... We knew pretty early on what the prognosis was from this diagnosis and um, Mish had a bucket list. And so we tried to do things that she Can you tell us any of the things were on the list? Well, one of the things was to go to Alaska and see the whales. And we went, we booked to go on a cruise with some friends of ours uh, to go and see the whales and the brown bears and, and the glaciers. Oh, my word, it was Amazing, absolutely amazing. I suppose I'm, I'm, I don't want to be a romantic novelist, but I guess the experience heightened by the fact that you knew this would be something you'd do together, and maybe not have the chance to do yes, again. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I remember on one occasion, Mish actually caught a, a pneumonia on the flight over, so she wasn't at, a, at her peak. But I remember seeing one of the whales. We'd seen a number of the whales come out breach, so come out of the water and slam that down. Amazing thing they can do. Astonishing. But we had a quite a big cabin window, and at, just at the time when I was in the cabin with Mish, this whale breached just outside of our of our window. So whether it was someone upstairs saying, "You haven't had the greatest trip in the world," or, uh, but here is Here's one especially for you. you. I've no idea, but it just worked to perfection. Um, so that was a that was a memorable trip, and um, and unfortunately she went downhill quite rapidly after that now clearly she's a, a woman who uh whose mind didn't hear it she knows her own mind um and i know there are legal ramifications about helping people with suicide and all the rest of it and so there was an inquiry um but i did read a, an interview with you where it, she clearly had decided she was going to take some tablets and mm -hmm. end it and you were in the house with her that evening yeah, I mean, for for a while, um, we didn't sleep in the same bedroom because she said she found my snoring kept her awake rather a lot. She didn't sleep very well, but my no. snoring kept her awake. So, so we'd slept in separate rooms for for a little while, and I had no idea when she was going to to uh, take her own life. You knew she was going to do it, though. Yeah. yeah, right from the word go. In fact, she'd said that she was not going to see this disease out because she didn't want to be a burden to anyone else. She wanted no. to be in control for as long as possible and i think that's that's a general consensus for motor neurone disease sufferers they want to be in control and when they lose control they just feel completely helpless so 
Mish was at some stage had told me that she would end it in her own way, but she wouldn't tell me how, and she certainly because she didn't tell want me you when. to be involved because there are legal ramifications Absolutely. in this country. Absolutely. So, so when it happened, um, and obviously she went to hospital, and she was uh, she, she was looked after by the people at uh, Nottingham uh, Queen's Medical Centre. She lasted for another 24 hours, and and in any suspicious death, the police always have to, uh, you know, find out what actually happened. And and so, you know, the fact that I wasn't in the room at the time when she she uh, took her own life, um, and she'd had a concoction of uh, of medicines that she um, injected into a, a tube, which had been put into her stomach to feed her so she was still able still just about strong enough to be able to uh, push this through a syringe into the tube into her stomach and and she passed away peacefully um because one of the part of it was valium so clearly you know she knocked herself out very quickly and then the the drugs then had an effect after 24 hours did you find the inquiry afterwards that i know the police had to do that did you find that a very difficult experience the thing i found difficult was that uh, mish was very well organized and she'd laid out bits of her jewelry and bits of clothing and what have you for various people put notes on it uh and so so when she was taken away in the ambulance and I went with her. The police obviously asked me questions at the hospital and I said, listen, you know, go back to the house. You know, It was do all what... clearly an act of free will, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so the police had to investigate. They went back to the house and they, they actually took away these things in envelopes and what have you. Uh, and I found that disappointing, you know, and upsetting because... Misha had set them out and she wanted these gifts to go to the various people and I was quite happy to do that. But they explained that they obviously had to make sure they were what they were in these envelopes so they'd x-rayed them and uh, and done everything else and they let me have them back within 24 hours. So at least it was rectified fairly quickly. Um, but, you know, it was it was a really sad day And but out of the sadness has come the broad appeal which is which, which are, is, i'm sitting here watching you where you've got a yellow and blue uh, one of those wristbands on that says the broad appeal yeah i also say and i'll say this to you on air now because i said it to you privately um stuart your son who we'll talk about in very positive circumstances in a little while um he's not uh mish is not his mum and yet i see him doing work for the broad appeal and sometimes mm. when when people tell you he's a bit of a brat and things when he gets his dander up playing cricket i think actually when you look at the way he works with his dad in the broad appeal thing you think that boy's got some heart you know this is not just a, some some kid shouting or some punk um, shouting well, at the umpire he was he was 20 he was 14 when uh, mish and i got together my daughter Gemma was 16 so very impressionable uh, ages Could for, be very difficult for teenage. For them as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Mish was brilliant at being able to uh, encompass them into her life, our life, as well as my ex-wife's uh, yeah. life as well. So she was a, she was a magnificent uh, uh, human being from that point of view. And she made a massive impression on both Stuart and Gemma. So when she died and... Uh, in fact, before she died, she wanted us to set up this appeal to help raise awareness about motor neuron disease and some funds at the same time. That's the, those are the twin aims of, of the Absolutely. appeal, yeah? Awareness being the first one, but, but obviously, you know, the fact that it's an incurable disease at the moment, 
researchers need funds as well. So we try and raise funds wherever possible to, to help with the research into motor neuron disease. And that's an ongoing project, obviously. And it, when, when it started, we said, let's let's do two years, see where we are. You know, don't want to put too much pressure on Stuart in particular, but Gemma, who also has a role in, in the cricketing world as well and a busy life, as do I, it's, it's difficult to know where it's going to go. So we've done two years. And, and what we've all said now is let's keep it going as an ongoing thing. It's kind of grown legs. Other people are now organizing events under the Broad Appeal banner. Um, and, and you know, they, that is great awareness. That is great for the, the fundraising. So the Broad Appeal continues to, to rock and roll, which and, is great fun. And if people want to see what work you've already done or want to see how to get involved or just want to see what, what's happening. Well, we have a website, thebroadappeal.org. Um, my daughter does a, a Twitter account, uh, The Broad Appeal. Um, so you can find out all the information that you wish to on on the website or from the Twitter account. So, you know, Broadappeal.org broad um, to see what some positive has come out of what was otherwise uh, a difficult and harrowing time. And thank you very much for talking so clearly uh, about that to us here where you're listening to me, Danny Kelly, and more importantly, the voice and experiences of my guest tonight on My Sporting Life, Chris Broad. Chris, we must get on to back to cricket matters if, if we can. Um, and I know you like to uh, to have a bit of a knockabout fun about your son, Stuart, uh, England's um, one of England's two primary uh, pace bowlers and a batsman, I think, who could do a little bit better. Um, <laughs> but actually, let, just just for because this is a programme of record, how proud are you to have uh, have your son come follow you into the England team? And let's be fair, he is a terrific cricketer. Yeah, he is. Uh, and I mean, I talked about, you know, when I first started playing and, and maybe not seeing too many barriers, it was just a, a, a relatively natural progression from club cricket to first class to, to test cricket almost. And I see exactly the same for him in that, I, you know, I'm in a position where I can see some hurdles that and particularly from opposition players, but he seems to be able to just swan over them so easily. And I don't really think he's had a massive dip in form. There was the time last winter when he got left out uh, for the Indian Test Series, but he had an injury in the first Test match. Given those pitches, he was lucky to be left out, I think. Well, yes, <laughs> but you know, he, he had an injury in the first Test match and he was seriously ill, stomach problems before the start of the second Test match. And I don't think he should have played in either of those because he didn't do himself any favours. So when he got left out, I think it was the right thing to do. And of course, he then got this injury with this fat pad. This heel um, thing, virtually no one's ever heard of before. I know, I know. But fortunately, for a man with no weight on him at all, the fat pad sounds a bit yeah. unfortunate injury to get, isn't <laughs> yes, it? Yes, that's right. But for a bowler, of course, you're running in and pounding the foot down, you know, every time you bowl. And so it a, became he's a unit as well. He's clattering a fair amount of humanity down onto that heel, isn't that's he? That's right. But he's found a way of of getting over that, and it's now not an issue through through a, an insert into his boot and also uh, a, a new style of boot as well. Was he a brilliantly talented cricketer as a young boy? Did you always know that, oh, my God, he's got it? I actually saw him at school. He went to Oakham School in, in Leicestershire, and or Rutland, should I say. Mm -hmm. And uh, Yeah, you're better for the local. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and he was a batsman. He was a batsman who bowled a bit. And I have to say, come 16, 17, I really didn't think that he, had, he was going to have the makings of a first-class player because he didn't score enough runs. He didn't have a great technique 
But then he started to shoot up. He had, uh, I think he shot up about 18 inches. Well, you're in, a tall man, but he's a very tall chap. In, in such a short space of time. And he enjoyed his bowling much more. He, he enjoyed hitting the deck. He enjoyed getting extra bounce out of the pitch. And Leicestershire, bless him, saw uh, a future in him as a bowler, signed him up as, uh, as a bowler for their county. And he made his debut very quickly after signing for Leicestershire. And really, from there, it, it was just a meteoric rise to get regularly into the first team, then have an opportunity in England's one-day side, and then get into the test side. And as I say, he's not really looked back. And uh, I, um, I, I, I think he's a fantastic bowler, Stuart. Um, but I do think he suffers in the shadow sometimes of Jimmy Anderson. But as I was reminding somebody here at Talk Sport this very day, and yet another heated argument about cricket, yes, such things happen here. Um, you know, Jimmy Anderson wasn't the genius that he is now when he was Stuart's age. Absolutely, he, he still got he still got some learning to do there. Jimmy you know? was was inconsistent up until probably the age of 26, 25, 26. Yep. and then he realised you know what his body can and can't do. Found a formula that worked for him and has continued with his formula for for the last five or six years. And oh. Stuart is is going through that process at the moment, I think. I don't think we'll talk about Stuart's batting because, uh, uh, A, his job at the moment is to be a great bowler and, mm. B, I get very irated about it. Um, I don't know whether I want him to slow down and become an all-round kind of uh, blocker then hitter or whether we ought to just go for every shot because he's clearly got some talent. We won't talk about that for now. We mentioned Anderson. We mentioned your son. Um, and they, of course, will be the spearhead of what should be an astonishing years of cricket. Ten test matches against Australia coming up in succession. I... I'm part of the media that's going at the moment. Oh, England are going to walk this, but it does, of course, always a part of me which knows you cannot underestimate Australian teams. But this is a this is this is almost in some ways it'll be a defining time for the two of them as a, as, a, as a bowling attack because Jimmy will soon, uh, you know, in a couple of years' time it'll leave Stuart and someone else to lead the attack. But these ten games against Australia, let's say they play in eight of them because who knows what will happen. This is a defining moment, isn't it? It is. It is, uh, and fitness will play an enormous role in that in the series from both sides really because when you're playing back-to-back test matches it takes its toll out on you trying to bowl fast as well absolutely so you've got two test matches at the start of this summer back-to-back then there's a break then there's two more and then there's the final one at the oval and then of course you go to australia very soon afterwards and you play on their harder and and faster pitches and again it's sort of back-to-back test matches so fitness is going to play an enormous part for both both teams but i think it's it's whoever starts the best will will have uh, the, the 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 say in how the series goes of the two teams and i think on paper england are by far the strongest team but never write off these australians particularly as they've now got an australian fair dinkum aussie coach who will try and inspire the aussies within the team to perform like they're used to performing over the years. And it would be unfair of me, sitting in front of a former England opener, not to mention Alistair Cook, because, you know, you you did what you did, and we talked about the things you did down under, and I can think about, I'm old enough to remember, Jeff Boycott just about opening for England, and you can mm. think about Atherton and Gooch and all the rest of it. But Cook... It's modern game, and you can't compare error to error. He's he's blowing every record away, isn't he? Uh, as an England opener, he is. He has an astonishing record as an England. Is that because he's an astonishing batsman. player, or is there something uh, else? Listen, going I on? don't think he. You would pay money to go and see him bat because no. he's not as stylish as, let's say, a David Gower. But he scores runs for fun. 
And as an opening batsman, that is your role. As as a, a member of the opposition, you look at the opening batsman of that team and you see them scoring 100 after 100 after 100. Um, it, it's just impossible to be able to break through to the middle order, which is where you're looking to pick up a few wickets and, and get into the team. So far, touch wood, he looks like, and you probably have a bit more insight into this from inside the England camp than I do, it looks like the captaincy has not been a burden to him and the players have taken to him. It seems to have spurred him on. You know, he is scoring more runs now than he's ever scored before. And long may it continue as far as an England supporter is concerned. And, and, and the other, the, the downside of what you do for a living, which I know you love, um, is that you can't ever re- um, referee England, yeah. um, which means you're probably off, off working while Stuart's doing his thing and the team are doing their thing. How do you keep in touch? I mean, obviously you've, you follow the cricket by electronic means. Um, how often would you say you speak to Stuart um, when he's off doing his England thing? Well, during the English summer, uh, pretty frequently because uh, most of the cricket is played in the Northern Hemisphere during the English summer. So I then don't get an appointment overseas. Yeah. So, so I'm around pretty much most of the English summer. Um, as for the winter, you know, I let him know a phone number that I have when I'm overseas. He does the same for me. So we do chat. We do text or chat from time to time um, and just find out how each other are going. And it's, you know, there is there is a good relationship there between mm-hmm. father and son. Clearly, he is he is a very, very good player um, who has a massive future ahead of him. Um but, you know, he respects where he's come from and he, he appreciates the, the, the form that I showed in my career as well. So. And forgive me for saying it, because I say for every day that you did do something um, like bash your stumps over or not walked, I'm sure there were <laughs> many, many days when you behaved perfectly correctly. Uh, there are times, let's put it this way, of the current England team, if one of them is liable to kick up, it tends to be, uh, it tends to be S. Broad Esquire, doesn't it? Uh, he is my my son. <laughs> yeah, uh, he is the, his father's the son. The apple has you know. not fallen far from the tree. No, there, that is it? true. That is true. Yeah. And and of course, as a match referee, you'd have to. It's just as well you can't do them there because you'd have to tut it in, wouldn't uh, you? I listen. I enjoy a, a game that's got a bit of spice in it, and and he is a character who provides a bit of spice, as the uh, other members of the team do the same. I. I a bland game of cricket for me is not an entertaining one. So let's have a little bit of character. Let's have a little bit of of friction between the teams, between the individuals. I think that's great as long as it doesn't go too far. I guess it has been. Uh, uh, I mean, we've, uh, we've heard ups and downs of quite extraordinary natures over the last couple of hours. We're just talking about the sporting side of it. What's your favourite moment in cricket? Do you think? Listen, as a batsman, it's always scoring a hundred, and I think. Uh, the ultimate is scoring 100 for England against Australia, and that happened in Perth uh, in '86. First um, one, yeah, the yeah. first one. I mean, it was got Blazard Blase when the next ones just kept coming. Well, and coming. Uh, yeah, but you know, it, it was a special moment to get selected in the first place yep. at, at Lords as well. That's that is a wonderful place to play cricket. But I think as a batsman to get 100 playing for your country um, was was amazing. I was disappointed I didn't score 100 in this country, but. But to have scored one in Perth in uh, an Ashes series was, was for me, probably the highlight. You probably know the answer to this quiz question. Has anyone ever scored six centuries for England without scoring one of them uh, on the home sod? I can't imagine they have. Actually, I don't know the answer no. to that one, Danny, I'm afraid. Well, it would be a very unusual... It's already a very unusual statistic. If someone's yeah. done more, then it would be a very, very unusual yeah. statistic. Um, and outside of, of cricket, what are, what, are, what are you most proud of? Uh, 
Outside of cricket, well, my kids, I yeah. suppose. You know, any any father who has uh, a son and a daughter that have achieved what they've achieved in their sports to date um, is it's a it's an astonishing thing, really. And I mean, the future looks bright for both of them. They are still very much enjoying what they're doing. Um, still very much young enough to continue to be doing what they're doing for a, a number of years yet. So, so both of them make make all of us in the Broad family very proud. You're still a young man, um, and you're you're in a pretty good trim there, if you don't mind me saying. So, hopefully, there'll be uh, decades ahead yet in the in the life, sporting and otherwise, of Chris Broad. Um, are you one of those people who looks to the future? Have you got ambitions? What do you hope for, if, if nothing else, for you and the people you love? No, I don't really have a great deal of ambitions in life. I enjoy what I do as a match referee. I would like to continue doing that for as long as possible because uh, I, I'm a great sports fan, cricket fan, um, and the job allows me to, to travel the world and to see people and to watch fantastic games. Um, I, I just want to continue doing what I'm doing for as long as I can, really. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening, and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.